So yeah, we talked last week we began our sermon series on the life of Daniel. We started with Daniel chapter 1. Um, and uh, we taught, we discussed the, the aspect of, of living in Babylon and what that meant and kind of what was going on. There was lots of political um, problems going on. Uh, Egypt was trying to take over the tribe of Judah and they were, trying to, they were trying to do that in order to cut off trade routes. King Nebuchadnezzar did not like that because that meant less moolah and he also wanted the power and the control. And I think you'll be able to figure out how much power and control he wanted tonight as we go through this. So anyway, so because of that, he takes Judah into captivity, right? And while doing this, there were some things that he, that, that, that he took from Judah. He took something out of the temple. Does anybody remember what that was? All the temple goods, all the valuables. He, he took them out of Solomon's temple in order to place them in his temple. And if you remember, we talked about how, how pagan kings in those days that worshipped idols, your idol was determined by how wealthy you were. So how much wealth you had built up in the temple determined how strong people would measure your idol or your God as being. And so Nebuchadnezzar took these goods that were meant to, to serve and to worship the Lord our God in order to worship his idols. But that wasn't the only thing that he saw was valuable. He saw all of the um, young men with influence as valuable. And uh, if you remember, we... Uh, talked about how they were they were children of Israel. Some of them were the king's descendants. Some were nobles. Some were just of the tribe of Judah. That's where Daniel fell into all of that. He was of the tribe of Judah, and he wanted uh, young people with no blemish, but good looking and gifted in wisdom and possessing knowledge and quick to understand. And one of the things that he did right away when he brought them into captivity was change their identity or their names. He took their names that represented and brought worship and glory to, to Yahweh, our God, and he changed them to names that represent his God. And so right away, he's changing their identity. And there's kind of this, this manipulation that's, that's beginning to happen. And he picked all of these guys that were higher up in society because of that influence. He wanted to influence them so they could influence the rest of the people. And so, uh, as a part of this grooming process, he gives them of the delicacies of the king's table. Does anybody remember what the delicacies consisted of? Wine. Wine. Meat. Meats. It was, it was meats that were used to... That was sacrificed to his... To his gods. Exactly. So, if Daniel were to partake of that food, it was going to be a form of caving to the lifestyle of Babylon and worshiping their idol gods, and he would not do that. So what kind of a diet was Daniel on? The Daniel's fast. He was on the Daniel's fast. Vegetables and water. Vegetables and water. But we also talked about the fact that Daniel, uh, uh, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were not the only uh, Hebrew boys that were there. There were others. They were just a small portion, but they were the only ones who were willing to not bow, basically bow to this God or not partake of this food that represented their gods and worshiping their gods. So they did not compare themselves to the other people. That was a point that was brought up as well. If Had they compared themselves, what do you think would have happened? 
they would have caved, they would have fallen. And so, but by the end of, of our lesson, we had found a very important detail, a key detail. And that was the very last verse, which is the title of this series, To Be Continued. And it says that Daniel continued unto the reign of King Cyrus. And that king came 60 years down the road. So we established the fact that not only did Daniel refuse to partake of the delicacies, not only did he, did he not really care what they called him, it didn't change anything about him. He said, okay, I can't, I can't, I can't change what you think of me, but I'm not going to let that change my identity for who I know I am and who I serve. So he, he ignored the name change, he, but he didn't partake of the delicacies. And then he goes on, he doesn't even drink the wine. And there was nothing wrong with the wine, correct? So there's nothing wrong with the wine, but that was him establishing that was the wine was like representing perfection for him i'm going to draw the line way over here so that way it keeps me away from over here and that was that was that was establishing the fact that he would draw the line so far back that was his standard of holiness it didn't matter what anybody else thought represented what they believed the bottom line was he wasn't going to partake of the wine even though he could have, it wasn't sacrificial, it wasn't an animal. Wine doesn't come from animals, right? You're not drinking blood or anything. That'd be weird. But, but it established a direction, a direction of perfection. Remember that quote? A great theologian once said, it's not about perfection, it's about direction. Be thou perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's about having a direction. So he established that line and that gave him direction. And so the bottom line is he continued to do this and he continued to live out a lifestyle of faith towards God. And he did this for 60 plus years, which spans basically the book of Daniel. And so tonight we are going to continue this journey with Daniel, um, not Daniel specifically, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many people have heard of those names before? Fairly common. All right. And so you already know where this story is going. But let's see where this takes us. So in between Daniel chapter 1, what we studied last week, and right here, which is Daniel chapter 3, the only things that are really written down or have taken place is the fact that Daniel has since then interpreted some dreams. He's gained rank and position in the kingdom. So Daniel is not a part of this story. I don't know why. I don't know where Daniel is. You would think that Daniel would be a part of all of this, but he wrote about it. So he was somewhere to know what happened, enough to write about it, but he wasn't a part of the narrative. And so we're going to pick up here in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So verse 1 says, The king, or says Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. And it's with six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura on the providence of Babylon. This, first of all, was a massive idol. I think, am I, am I correct in my thinking that Goliath was 16 cubits? Is that, is that the spec that they give for him? So Goliath the giant is 16 cubits. This idol is 60 cubits. That equates to about 98 
feet. So this idol was nearly 100 feet tall and 28 feet wide. This thing was huge. And it was a gold idol, which doesn't necessarily mean that it was solid gold, because if you there are some areas in Isaiah where he describes how men make idols, and they usually formed them out of wood and pieced it together, and then they would go ahead and, and, and shape and form and mold gold plating or valuable plating that would then cover the idol. But still, to plate a 100-foot by 30-foot idol, that's a lot of gold, right? That's a lot of money. So this thing is massive. So we're going to skip a couple verses and pick up at verse 4. It says, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So this is what the king has decreed. He set up this image out on this plain, and he wants everybody from all over the place to come up and to honor and worship this idol. Verse 6 says, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately. Okay? That's at once or instantly or without hesitation. Okay? Immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, in symphony, with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which the king had set up. All right, so the first thing that I see here is that over the past few years, there's not an exact date for when this is taking place. We just know it's, it's down the road a couple years from chapter 1. Um, things in Babylon have escalated a little bit, right? The first battle with their faith, as we discussed last week, was a more private battle, if you think about it. I think it's safe to assume that the king did not really have a clue that David and his companions um, not eating of, were, were not eating of his delicacies. I don't think he had an idea that they weren't doing that. Because if, if, they, if he did, don't you think there would have been some kind of confrontation over that? Because as a king, I don't know about you, but I'd feel slighted. I'm giving you these platters of incredible food, and it's being wasted. You're going to eat vegetables instead? Are you crazy? So I don't think he really understood what was going on behind the scenes and what was making these young men so talented and so great and favorable in his sight. But here we are now, a few years later, and now it's more open. It's not just contained within the youth group anymore. It's not just contained within your bedroom anymore. Now we're getting out there into the school side of things and into the workplace and maybe in your future into the college side of things. Your, your faith is going to be tried on a more open level. Things, this is a totally different scenario than the challenge that they faced in the private with the eunuch by themselves with the fellow Jews who were all partaking of these delicacies. This is a much more open battle. Now, here's the bottom line. 
they had to be determined even more in this battle to stand firm in their faith. This is a whole nother level. Things have changed. And I know what it's like to be in your shoes. I know what it's like to think things like, well, I think that I'll get serious about serving God later. Because right now being a kid and a teenager is hard. I got friends over here. I've got everybody trying to take my time. I've got homework, sports, everything else. It's hard to serve God now. But maybe once I graduate and I get a job and I'm out on my own, things will be better. Wrong. You're wrong. All right. Does not work like that. Does not work like that. Well, if I could just get married and move out, life would be much easier. Wrong. <laughs> Absolutely wrong. Marriage is amazing. But you know what comes with that? More responsibility. And they're called babies. Um, but seriously, but, but in all seriousness, there is more responsibility the older you get. The older you get, the longer you've been on earth, the more opportunity you have for run into a rough situation or go through something health-wise maybe or financially and the more responsibility you begin to gain. Well, if I could just go to college already, dead wrong on that one. If you wait till college to get serious about your faith, you are. You're gone. You're a goner. Well, okay, but flash. Hold on a second. By, no. Bible school is just as bad. You're still wrong. Bible school is still college, okay? Your, your faith is still going to be challenged. You're going to see people there who are complete fakes in their faith, who are just going there to befriend, if you get my reference, other people and other Christians. It's going to happen because we're people. We're not perfect, okay? So the bottom line is now that in Daniel chapter 1 was their first trial of faith, and they stood firm in it. But you know what? They didn't get relaxed. They knew and they grew. As their responsibilities grew, as their blessings grew, as, as they continued on in life, as the landscape of their life widened, their faith grew with it. So they were going to have to stand strong in this moment. As the statement goes, a bigger ox means a bigger mess. So you got to be ready to clean it up. So, in the meantime, everybody's out there. Everybody's worshiping this idol. It's a, this big melting pot of people, kind of like America. I mean, it really is. If you read Daniel, it will remind you so much of America right now in this very moment. Um, so it's this big melting pot of people. And there are some people that happen to notice that these three Jews did not bow to the idol. They were Chaldean men, and they came up to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, hey, you gave this decree and this command that people were going to be thrown into the fire. And these boys did not bow. We're just letting you know. And so we pick up at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? 
All right. Notice that it, back in 13, it says, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury. Okay, Old Testament, KJV, NKJV, does not lack the dramatics. Okay, he is in rage and fury. But then he goes on to ask this question to confirm it with them. So he's clearly upset, but I believe he still has some respect for these guys because after all, manpower is valuable. He invested three years of food and training into these young men, and they are among the smartest men in his realm. So he's, he's being respectful enough here because he said you would be cast instantly. He could have just thrown them right in and honored his word. But he asks them for himself. And then in verse 15, he says, Now if you are ready at this time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. That's a good thing. See this right here? Exclamation point. If you will do it now, then good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're going to do this now. I really don't want to throw you into the fiery furnace, even though I'm super ticked off right now. But I respect you enough to give you a second chance. That's more than you could probably ask for from a pagan king, right? That's a pretty good opportunity. That sounds a lot like God's favor over them. Just in case there was a miscommunication. Just in case. Because he's probably sitting there thinking, this is really hard for me to believe. Okay. Worship idol, live. Not worship idol, burn to death. See their options? Uh. <laughs> he's thinking, this makes no sense. Someone must not have gotten this communication down to them. Because this makes absolutely no sense why these people would not bow. So he gives them that second chance and we continue on with that same verse. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Think about that statement for a minute. What God is there that can deliver you from my hands? That tells you a lot about King Nebuchadnezzar, right? I'm the most powerful man on the planet. I have the largest idol you've ever seen, the most powerful gods because I have this wealth of riches, and I rule the largest empire in the world. What god will save you from my hand? Somebody's got issues. He thinks he's higher than God. He's placing himself above anybody else's God, including his own. What God will deliver you from my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. This is a complete mic drop. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. But if not, I want you to remember that. 
But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we, we, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. That is a powerful statement in this scripture. But if not, we're going to let you know, no matter what, we will not be worshiping that idol. Would you make that statement? That'd be an intense situation. They truly had this kind of a view on their life. And this viewpoint is found in Luke 12, verses 4 through 5. It says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That verse is saying, fear him who can kill both body and soul. They clearly had a healthy respect for the one who holds both body and soul in his hands. They truly understand that they are only in the hands of God in this moment. There is not one thing they can do under their own power to escape the clutches of this fiery death. They understand God's sovereign power in this situation. That there are one of two options here. Number one, he will either save us from this fire. Or number two, he's going to let us burn. Either way, it's up to God. But one thing's for certain, we will not bow. They had determined in their hearts whom they would serve. And they made this decision long before they encountered this adversity. They were strong. That is some strength in faith right there, that statement. That is powerful. We move on to verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. All right, now think about this for a second. Seven times more. Do you think someone just walked up and went, all right, here's the dial. Seven times more. I don't think so. Did they have some kind of a thermometer back then? Maybe they had a way of telling heat, but I don't think it'd be very accurate, right? So the bottom line is, in other areas of Scripture, like in, in Leviticus chapter 26, there's what's called the six chastisements, and it's talking about being disobedient to the law for a second time. Okay, They got their second chance from the king, being disobedient to Levitical law for a second time, and it always describes the punishments there as being seven times worse. So I don't think it's just, it's not a numerical value. The bottom line is, crank that baby up. Because we are incinerating some folks tonight. That's literally what he's thinking. He is so angry, so ferocious in this moment, that he wants that puppy cooking, all right? He wants to make sure that these guys are done. So they were given a second chance by an immoral king, unstable, prideful. What's the worst that could happen? Crank that, crank that baby up. Let's go. Let's go. Crank up the fire. Verse 20. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor, of valor that was like strong warriors, so 
If you can't picture a strong warrior in that time, I want you to picture like six clones of Dustin Hoffman coming up, <laughs> grabbing these guys, and marching them towards the furnace. All right? That's basically the equivalent. All right? So he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers. Does anybody here still wear trousers? Their turbans and other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's insane. That's insane. It was so hot that the men that escorted them up and cast them, in order to cast them into the fire, were immediately consumed. Gone. Done. Incinerated. In fact, when you look at the word exceedingly, in the Hebrew it means preeminent or surpassing. When you think about surpassing, it is defined as incomparable. It is incomparable. So this heat was so hot that there was literally nothing that you could compare it to on this planet. It was hot. It was turned up. That means those boys should have been gone as well as soon as they got to that point, the same point as those guards. But they were still alive enough to proceed to, in verse 23, fall into the midst of the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. They should have clearly already been dead. But he arose and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said, True, O king. <laughs> I mean, who's going to tell him no? <laughs> right? Like, ah, uh, sir, no, you miscounted. All right, get in there. Like, of course, yes. We did cast three in. You are 100% right. He was right. They did cast three in. But why is he asking this question? Well, let's look at verse 25. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Not only were they alive, alive and unharmed, but they were walking indicating that they were no longer bound. The most astonishing, th astonishing thing was who was walking with them. The fourth is like the Son of God. I believe that this is a perfect illustration for the plan of salvation in our lives. But before we get into that, let's read these next two verses. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair on their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of the fire was not on them. Now, I know that these boys did, didn't necessarily do anything wrong towards God, but I still believe that this is a great illustration for us tonight. Before we believed in Jesus and were baptized in his saving name and were filled with the Holy Ghost through the evidence of tongues, this is what life looked like. 
Picture that for a moment. This is what life looked like. We were bound by sin, feeling the heat of Satan's fiery accusations against us, seemingly being escorted to an eternity submerged in punishment. It was absolutely hopeless. There is no way out, no clear path to freedom, no one in sight to rescue us. But just when everything was about to go terribly wrong, the Son of God showed up. And as a result, we placed our undeniable faith in him. As the Apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is that kind of situation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He dwelt among them. So he dwelt among us, giving him, giving him the power to walk us through the fire for years to come. Though the accusations of the enemy are blazing, he just continues to walk us through unscathed by the heat. He unbinds us from our sin. He walks beside us through the judgments and brings us out onto the other side. Untouched by heat, not one hair singed, and furthermore, not even the scent of the sin from our past being embedded into our garments. Isaiah 61 and 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God gives you a garment that is untouched by the heat the smoke, the fire of sin. So what happens next? Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and, devour, and delivered his servants who trusted him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. What happens in the end? Just like with our salvation, God gets all the glory. There's nothing we could do but place our trust in him, and he will take care of the rest. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Furnace or not, through thick and thin, you can always count on God to guide you through it all just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to entertain one more final point before we are finished tonight. What were these young men actually being delivered from? What were they being delivered from? Any, any guesses? The fire. The fire? That, that's an honest guess. And you could say that, yes, they were being delivered from the fire. Bondage? Anything else? What's that? Group norms. Group norms. All right. Customs. Customs. That's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. That's a better one. <laughs> Just squasher. Wow. Wow. The king? So I see, I see 
a few options here. The furnace, the king, customs, the 100-foot idol. The bottom line is no matter what they were going to be no matter what, they were going to be delivered in some way, shape, or form. Why do I say that? Because what we find in verses 17 and 18. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. They separated it there. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar could only destroy their mortal bodies. He had the authority to do so if God would allow it to come to pass. But he did not have the authority to destroy their souls, and he did not have the authority to force them to bow. And the boys knew that. They knew that no matter what, the king would not get what he wanted. This, this is going to end, king. You're not getting everyone to bow. The king prided himself in getting every single human being in Babylon to bow to his idol. But there's three boys that are going to be a thorn in his side because you can't make us bow. You destroy us, we're still not bowing because we're destroyed. You keep us here, we're not bowing, period. We already told you that. That's why we're headed for the furnace and you're going to try to destroy us. So no matter what, it's not going to happen. This was a total heat check. No pun intended. <laughs> Did not think about that when I wrote that. This was a total heat check to the king. And they could do this because they knew if God didn't deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand, they were being delivered in another way. You see, I think the core purpose here, young people, is they were not being delivered from the fiery furnace. They were not being delivered from a king. They were not being delivered from an idol. They were being delivered from the spirit of idolatry that was all over the place. The furnace, the king, and the image, they all represented idolatry. The king decreed it. The furnace was most likely utilized to melt all of the gold that was plating that idol. And then, of course, the idol was the end result. So what was going to happen? Option A, like we've already established, they would not worship the idol and be thrown into the furnace and they would die being freed from the mortality of their bodies freed from the desires of the flesh. Don't you think maybe their flesh was telling them a little bit? Maybe I should bow. That was probably a struggle. That was probably hard. So in their minds, you throw us in this furnace, wait a minute. Our faith is so set on God. Our salvation is so assured to us in this moment because God's favor has been all over us. The, the, the proof is in the fruit of our lives and, and we're not bowing before this king that, wait a minute, if we die... We are going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, where we don't have to worry about idolatry anymore. We've put up with this for years now, and we're sick of it. We just want to worship our God. Or they would not worship the idol. Well, they'd be worship the idol, get thrown in, or they would not worship it, 
and something else would happen. They get thrown in and God walks them through it. And what happens in the end? It's in verse uh, 29. The king says, Therefore I make a decree. Here we go. He's making decrees again. That any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made as an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. The king decreed in favor of their God. So even when they were delivered from the fiery furnace, what happened? You don't need to worry about worshiping this idol anymore. I respect your God. Bottom line is they were being delivered from idolatry no matter which way they turned because they stayed strong in their faith. So my question for you tonight, just like I had one last week, what what is the idol that you need to be delivered from? That's what this whole story is all about. That's what kind of the whole book of Daniel is about. Daniel chapter 1, it's technically about worshiping idols. It's idolizing an idol. This one, this chapter, idolizing idols. When Daniel uh, gets thrown into the lion's den, it was over-worshiping his God and not the idols. This whole thing is about idols. What is your idol tonight? Think about that. Let's be serious for a moment. It could be a relationship. It could be, uh, I don't know, a game. It could be a book of some kind, some, some kind of reading material that you enjoy more than digging into the Word of God. An idol is anything that you set before God. Maybe it's just a friendship. You spend all your time hanging out with your friends every single night and then there's never any time left for God. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. Maybe it's, I don't know, it could be anything. The bottom line is every single person under the sound of my voice, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you know exactly how this applies to your life. Don't try to escape it. I know how this applies to my life right now. The bottom line is we all struggle from the beginning to the end of humanity, idolatry is a massive struggle. Because we can be idolizing something and not even know it. Because we're just so ingrained in what we're doing and in our passions. What does pastor always say? You can have many passions, but one obsession. I wonder if we can maybe just take a moment together and just pray about this and consult God and say, God, I'm sorry. My mind's veered off in this direction and I've got all these other passions over here that I've been entertaining, but I know that I can only have one obsession and I'm putting you back at the center of it all because I know that you can walk me through it and you can save me from it. Let's just pray for a few minutes. Lord Jesus, thank you for this night. Thank you for these, uh, 
moments to uh, share this message with these young people. Lord Jesus, I just pray right now that you would come down amongst your people like that furnace and reveal to us what it is that we need to change. Reveal to us, convict us in our hearts, deep within our core, within the core of who we are. Convict us, God, of where we need to make a change in our lives. Some idols can seem completely harmless, and we know that. But God, they are harmless if they get between you, or they are harmful if they get between you and me. So Lord, tonight, help me, God. Help me, Lord Jesus. Help my unbelief. Help me, Lord Jesus, to, to, to make sure that you are my number one obsession. And let's help each other to make sure you are the number one obsession. Lord Jesus, you are holy and perfect and mighty. We thank you, Father, for everything that you have done and everything you're doing currently in Surge Student Ministries. Lord, I have no doubt that you are dealing with these young people tonight and with myself as well, that we can all do better in this area. I pray that you get all the glory, the honor, and the praise, no matter what the case, no matter what we're dealing with, God. I pray that at the end, you receive all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.